Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Starting in chapter 28, and I think what I want to do tonight as we start, so I want to... Sometimes Clement just goes off. He just goes off and he's just talking and talking. And it's just kind of like you lose. Where, where, where are you going with this, Clement? Paul did the same thing. It's Maybe it's just a, maybe that's the way Greek writers write. It's easy to lose track of what's going on here. So I just want to remind you of the story, if there is a story. The story is that in Corinth, we've had this major upset, this change of the old guard to the new guard. And Clement doesn't like it. And Clement's writing to the Corinthians. He's saying that he wants them to go back to the original, their original leadership, the elders and the bishop that were put in place while they're actually second generation, but have a uh, you know, uh, connection to the apostles. What he doesn't say, he hasn't, and this is curious, you know, usually when there's a change in leadership, when there's some sort of upset, a coup like that, there's, there's some sort of theological reason in a congregation. You know, it's, it's very rarely that it doesn't at least have the, the pretense of some sort of theological underpinning to say that, oh, well, this is the new way and this is the right way, or you've got this wrong and we've got this right, that sort of thing. But Clement doesn't come right out and tell us, we don't see exactly what the issue is that would have caused this switcheroo. And so I'm kind of curious about that. I'm wondering if we haven't already gotten into the material, if he isn't just addressing the theological concerns without saying that he's doing so. You know, he might be just, maybe this, this is the, the material that we're actually already in, that he's addressing, he's countering the teachings of the new leadership and this is why he's hammering us with these scriptures and going through and making these points, one, two, three, one, two, three. And so let's just keep that thought in mind as we look at the material tonight and then we come to the end of this, we'll try to, we'll, we'll see if we can maybe assess what is the, what is the new direction that these upstarts in Corinth have taken that Clement might be trying to counter. All right, so we'll start in chapter 28, which I've titled, Can't Hide from God. He says, since therefore all these things are seen and heard, let us fear him and abandon the abominable lusts that spawn evil works in order that we may be shielded by his mercy from the coming judgments. And from the coming judgments, we have in mind two coming judgments. There's the judgment, uh, well, there could be more than two. Coming judgments might refer to any sort of calamity or affliction that is about to come upon the generation. It might refer to the Hevle Mashiach, the uh, birth pangs of Messiah, the, the tribulations that precede the kingdom of heaven. When the righteous Messiah comes then and makes war with the nations and, and rewards each man according to what he has done. Or it might refer to the final judgment, the final judgment at the end of the era and the beginning of the world to come. It could refer to all of them. And that's why I think he uses the plural form. He does not say the coming judgment, but he says the coming judgments. For where can any of us escape from his mighty hand? And what world will receive any of those who desert him? So 
if you desert Hashem, which world will receive you? Isn't that a strange way to, of speaking? What world will receive you? You know, maybe we think in terms of worlds, we think you know of other planets and that sort of thing, but that's not really in view here in the first century. Instead, I think when we're speaking about worlds, we're speaking about different spiritual realms, spiritual existences. For example, in Jewish mysticism, uh, you often speak of four worlds. I'm not saying that this is what Clement specifically had in mind, but he might have had something similar in mind. You often speak of four worlds. They are, uh, the four worlds of Jewish mysticism are Atzilut, which is the world of emanation. This is where Hashem alone dwells, the blessed Ein Sof, God without uh, without limit, and there's nothing else there. Um, but if there, I mean, if there is anything else there, it's completely consumed within him and loses all identity with Hashem. And then a lower order is the world of Berea. This is creation. It's uh, and it speaks of the beginning of the process of creation, of moving from you know that process of Tzimtzum, moving from the infinite God to the finite world. But we're still we're still not in the finite world when we get to Berea. We've just kind of made the first progression in that direction and then there's the third world is called Yetzira which is the word formation this is where uh, we begin to have angels and spirits and uh, souls and and this sort of thing uh, but it's you know it's it's still a spiritual realm uh, and and then uh, there's the the fourth world is called Asiya that is uh, the world of action or the world of doing and this is where it, even now it's still a spiritual realm, but uh, in, in this fourth world, angels carrying out God's will, angels, uh, you know, um, sentient of their purpose, souls that can now be tr- uh, uh, sent into the world of men because the world, our created order, is yet one grade lower than Asiya. Okay, that was a crash course in Jewish mysticism. I know I just kind of threw that out at you, and I don't really intend for you to understand that, know that, retain that. My only thought is that it would be a good way to illustrate this passage where he says, what world will receive us if we defect from Hashem? Why? Because he says, as the scripture says, and now he's quoting for us from Psalm 139, In the Psalms, where shall I go and where shall I be hidden from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, see another world, if I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I depart to the ends of the earth, there is your right hand. If I make my bed in the depths, it's like another world, there is your spirit. In other words, Hashem is everywhere. You can't you can't escape him. It's like Jonah trying to flee from Nineveh, going and you know, heading out for Tarshish. So Clement sums this up. He says, Where then can one go? Where can one flee from him? From him who embraces the universe. Who embraces the universe. The Lord encompasses all time and space. That's the the idea there, him who embraces the universe. It's, you know, like a, like a man, you know, like a, I don't know, I, I picture a man, in, you know, like when you carry the Torah, you put your arm around the Torah, you embrace the Torah and carry the Torah. It says in Song of Songs, puts his right hand around me, right arm around me, that's how you're supposed to hold the Torah. I think that's the image of Hashem embracing the universe, carrying like all of time and space, like a man carrying a Torah scroll. That's chapter 28. 
chapter 29. So chapter 28, we just sum that up and say, you can't hide from God. You can't get away from God. There's no place you can get away from God. Chapter 29, he goes on and he says, let us therefore approach him in holiness of soul, lifting up to him pure and undefiled hands. What does this mean, lifting up pure and undefiled hands? Well, you know, it makes me think of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands, right? Or it makes me think of 1 Timothy 2.8. Anybody know that text? 1 Timothy 2.8. I want men everywhere to lift up, right? Am I right? I'm still getting to 1 Timothy. I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So it sounds to me like when Clement says we should lift up uh, pure, let him lift up pure and undefiled hands, he's referring to a posture of prayer. He goes on saying, loving our gentle and compassionate Father who made us his chosen portion. What does this mean? He made us his chosen portion. Well, he goes on to explain. He gives us a verse from the Torah. And the, the verse from the Torah is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. In the Torah it says, When the Most High divided the nations, when he dispersed the sons of man, the sons of Adam, he fixed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel. But in, in Clement it says according to the angels of God. But in the, in the Masoretic text, in the Hebrew, it says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Well, how many sons of Israel are there? There's a lot. It's more than 600,000 when Moses said this, right? However, what's in view is the number of the sons of Israel at the beginning of the book of Exodus, where it says, 70 went down into Egypt. According to the number of the, the, son, the, number of the sons of Israel who went down into Egypt is 70. So it says he fixed the boundaries of the nation according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's 70 nations. Does it make sense? You just have to trust me on this then. Seven, there's 70 nations. And so Clement says, instead of saying according to the number of the sons of Israel, like it says in the Torah, he says according to the number of the angels of God. Are there only 70 angels then? Well, no, there's millions and millions of angels, as he's going to tell us in just a little bit. So, so how do we understand this? Seventy angels refers to the seventy sarim. They're called sarim in Hebrew. Princes, the seventy princes. And the rabbis teach that there are seventy sarim, seventy princes, over the seventy nations. However, Israel, the nation of Israel, does not have a sar. It does not have an angelic prince over it. Because... As the verse goes on, it says, His people Jacob became the Lord's portion, Israel his inherited allotment. In other words, Hashem chose Israel for himself. So he puts an angelic prince, like the prince of Persia or the you know whatever you have, the prince of Egypt. <laughs> you put these different princes over the nations, these angelic princes, but uh, Hashem says, As for Israel, my people, that they're... they're I alone will be their head. Now, there's another explanation that says the angel Michael is the Tsar of Israel. Michael is Michael, right? But this isn't necessarily a conflict because Michael is just one of the four cardinal angels. 
And, uh, you know, the name Michael, what does it mean? It means who is like God. Who is like God. So God, God is, Israel is God's portion. Now what's nice about this passage is the way that Clements has appropriated it. And by appropriated, I mean he's appropriated it for believers as well. It's obviously about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the set apart. That's God's portion, his chosen people. But Clement is including believers in this nation, this status of being God's portion, God's chosen portion. It goes on. And in another place, now you have to listen closely to this, or if you're reading along, read, read along closely. In another place, he says, Behold, the Lord takes for himself a nation out of the midst of the nations. As a man takes the first fruits of his threshing floor, and the Holy of Holies will come forth from that nation. I have no idea what that means. Well, no, I've got some idea what that means. But I have no idea what, what it means in the end of it, especially that bit about the Holy of Holies coming forth from its nation. Plus, I don't know where it's from. He says uh, it's written in another place. But once again, he doesn't tell us the places where it's written. And once again, he's quoting a text that we don't have any other place. This is getting disappointing. You know, this is getting a little frustrating, isn't it? It's like, you know, I feel like we're missing half the Bible or something. So let's, let's look at this a little closer. Behold, the Lord takes for himself a nation out of the midst of the nations. Well, that's easy to understand. He took Israel out of the peoples. I mean, this is, we say this, you know, all the time in, in, in the liturgical refrains, who has sanctified us and chosen us from all the peoples and this sort of thing. He takes a nation out from the midst of the nations, but then he makes this remarkable simile. As a man takes the first fruits of his threshing floor, and the Holy of Holies will come forth from that nation. What is the first fruits of his threshing floor? The first fruits of the threshing floor is truma. It's the uh, portion that's given to the priesthood. It's not the tithe, right off the top. And it's, uh, it, it's, there's actually not a prescribed measure in the Bible. It doesn't say how much you give. The rabbis said, I think it is one sixtieth is what they came up with as being a reasonable amount of truma. But this is not a tithe. Instead, it's like the challah that you take out of the bread. It's a gift for the kohanim, for the priests. So the truma is um, it's a sacred portion that desanctifies the whole of the batch. You've been threshing, you've been threshing, you know, you're throwing, you're throwing that stuff up in the air and husking it and that sort of thing. And pretty soon you've got a nice pile of grain there on your threshing floor and you finish threshing. And so you take like two scoops, you know, like two scoops of raisins, you know. You take two scoops and set that aside for the priesthood. You know, the priest is going to come around to the threshing floor. He's going to, you know, the local priest, your local colon, he's going to come around and he's going to pick up his truma from each of these threshing floors. Now, the thing about the truma is that it's holy, meaning that the priest himself has to be in a state of ritual purity in order to eat it. It's kind of like a sacrifice. Members of his household can eat it, but uh, they also have to be in a state of ritual purity. So the truma, you know, this is why the, you have the, the ritual washing of hands began in the first place, was because the priests needed to uh, wash their hands before they handled the truma. That's how it all got started. Here's, now I think we can understand it a little better. Once again, behold, the Lord takes for himself a nation out of the midst of the nations. 
as a man takes the first fruits, let's read truma, as the man takes the truma of his threshing floor, and the holy of holies will come forth from that nation. See, the, uh, the truma, I think, is what's being referred to as the holy of holies. Hmm. Still not sure I get it. Holy of holies comes forth from that nation. Unless holy of holies is some sort of cryptic reference then to either the priesthood itself, which is like a portion taken out of the nation, and maybe Clement understands as a reference to Messiah who comes forth from the holy nation. That's the best I can do for you there. That's a pretty cool chapter, don't you think? You had, what did you have in there? You had the 70 nations, a, a ruling for, a, a source for why there are 70 nations. You had the 70 Sarim, the angelic princes. And you had this totally, totally boss, cryptic, non-canonical passage of scripture with this really obscure priestly laws attached to it. Yeah, that's, that was pretty great. Any questions? Okay, chapter 30. Here's what he's going to do with that. <clears throat> he says, seeing then that we are the portion of the Holy One. Now that's, I mean, if, if it wasn't for Clement, if it wasn't that Clement was saying that, I'd say, hmm, that sounds like replacement theology. But check it out. Clement is actually probably Jewish himself, right? He's a proselyte. Even though he wasn't born Jewish, I think he's converted. So he, has, he doesn't have any trouble saying that. And he knows that uh, there's Jewish people that he's writing to. And this is still in that sweet, innocent sort of time in, in the early apostolic era. The Gentile believers were still with the Jewish community, you know, still with the Jewish community in such a way. So he says, seeing then that we are the portion of the Holy One, let us do all these things, all the things that pertain to holiness. So now we're going to get a list. Have you ever wondered what pertains to holiness? Here we go. Forsaking slander. I'm down with that. Forsaking slander. That's a good one. Evil speech. Good. Forsaking disgusting and impure embraces. <laughs> I have to laugh. <laughs> disgusting and impure embraces. I don't know. Too many things come to mind. Um, forsaking drunkenness. Forsaking rioting. Well, <laughs> you know, riotous living, I think, is what's in, in view there. Forsaking detestable lusts. Forsaking abominable adultery, and then the one that he's going to camp on, forsaking detestable pride. For God says, and this is a passage that's quoted, this is a passage from Proverbs he's bringing. Yeah, this is Proverbs 3.34. It's quoted in James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. For, for God, he says, resist the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let us therefore join with those to whom grace is given by God. In other words, the humble. Let's join the humble. Let us clothe ourselves in concord. Being humble and self-controlled. Keeping ourselves far from all backbiting and slander. Having just, have, being justified by works and not by words. That, shouldn't that, that kind of raises an alarm, doesn't it? Justified by what? <laughs> justified by works. And not by words. But remember, James says the same thing. Yeah, and you, you, we could look that passage up in James just, James 2.21. He says, you want to see that Abraham was justified by his works and not just by what he believed. For he says, he who speaks much shall hear much in reply. 
Or does the talkative person think that he is righteous? Blessed is the one born of a woman who has a short life. What? <laughs> Do not be overly talkative. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. I just I, that caught me by surprise. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't. It's um. You know, even the quotation itself is a little. It, it raises a question for me because this is from Job. Did you recognize it? I didn't. It, it's from Job. It's a passage from Job, chapter eleven, verses two and three, and it's the words of Zophar, the not the Zophar, one of Job's friends. So he says, you know, you talk too much, Job. <laughs> Basically, that's that's what he's saying. Anyway, Clement says he takes this passage and reapplies it. He says, "What what is the talkative person person think? You know, because he talks he, he talks big about himself that that makes him righteous. Let's be justified by works, not by word. So, in other words, it's not just your your lip service, your uh, your creed, you know, your doctrine. These are all words, 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 right?" Clement's saying, show me the money, you know, show me the good deeds. Talk is cheap. He says, let our praise be with God and not from ourselves, for God hates those who praise themselves. That's strong language when you say God hates someone, but this is what he says. God hates those who praise themselves. Verse 7, let the testimony to our good deeds be given by others, which is, you know, this Proverbs 27, let let another man's lips praise you. As it was given to our fathers who were righteous. What does he mean, our fathers? You know, he's he's writing to this mixed group, right? In in Corinth, you know, probably predominantly a Gentile congregation. What does he say? Our fathers. Who's he talking about? Who's our fathers? Well, he's speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is. He's referring to Abraham, and J- Isaac, and Jacob as our fathers. And I can prove it because he's going to immediately start talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the next chapter. Boldness and arrogance and audacity are for those who are cursed by God. But graciousness and humility and gent- gentleness are with those who are blessed by God. Any questions on chapter 30? So, what would you, what, what should we title chapter 30? You talk too much. <laughs> that, was, that, that, was, that does stick out, doesn't it? I think I would call it holiness and humility. How's that? Easy enough? That's what I put on my sheet. Holiness and humility. More work, less talk. Yeah, that works. <laughs> All right, chapter 31. Let us therefore cling to his blessing, to God's blessing. And let us investigate what are the ways of blessing. So that makes sense. He says, let's cling to God's blessing and let's investigate the ways of blessing. In other, I mean, who doesn't want this? You want to be in God's blessing. You want to be under God's blessing. And so the way to do that is to look at the ways of blessing. What are the, you know, what are the ways in which, which God you know, blesses a man for? He says, and, and how should we do that? Here's how he says it. He says, let us study the records of the things that have happened from the beginning. Now, I don't care for this translation. I like a much more literal translation on this particular verse. Because what he literally says is, let us unroll, let us unroll the things that have happened from the beginning. Yeah, it refers to a scroll. And the beginning, that's just Brashit. So he's saying, let's unroll the scroll of Brashit. And, and take a look at Genesis, so go, going back to the story of Genesis. And he begins, 
Why was our father Abraham blessed? Here you are, you're in Genesis with Abraham. Was it not because he attained righteousness and truth through faith? Clement has a specific verse in mind from Genesis when he says, Was it not because he attained righteousness and truth through faith? What's the verse? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul, Paul makes a big deal out of this verse. Okay, so that's Abraham. Isaac, take Isaac for example. Isaac, with confidence and knowing the future, was willingly led to sacrifice. All right, now this is really interesting here because here we have another instance where we see that Clement is informed by Jewish tradition. You don't, you don't get that teaching outside of Jewish tradition that Isaac willingly consented to his sacrifice. But Jewish tradition, uh, well, I'll just give you a few examples. Genesis Rabbah 56.8. Can one bind a 37-year-old man without his consent? So the teaching is that Isaac was 37 years old when he went to be sacrificed. Now, I, I know that in the popular Christian mind, we think of Isaac as a, as a, you know, the popular Christian depiction, you think of Isaac as this little boy that's being led obliviously off. Where are we going, Dad? <laughs> Never you mind, son. <laughs> That's kind of sick, though, when you think about it. <laughs> Abraham's hiding the knife behind his back. You know? Oh, God will provide a lamb. Don't worry about it. <laughs> In the Jewish teaching of, of the passage, however, uh, the Jewish reckoning works it out this way. Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born in Genesis 21. She was 137 when she died in Genesis 23. What comes between Genesis 21 and 23? The Akedah, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Hence, Isaac was 37 years old. 37 years elapsed. Isaac was 37 years old at the time of his binding. And so the Midrash Rabbah is saying, can a, a man who's 100 years old bind a man who's 37 years old and put him on the altar against his will? Obviously, Isaac went willingly to, the to his sacrifice. And this is expanded on in a lot of different Jewish teachings and a lot of Jewish traditions. For example, you have Isaac saying in Midrash Agada, he says, do not feel distressed, Father. Fulfill your Creator's will through me and may my blood provide atonement for the future Jewish people. Statements like that, a lot of statements like that in the Midrash. We could talk about that sort of thing all night, but I just wanted to bring it up as, as in another example that Clement is thoroughly informed by the Midrash and by Jewish tradition, just like the apostles. This shows the Jewish province of his teaching and the epistle of Clement. It shows us that we are still before, this is still before the great divorce. Verse 4, Jacob, we had Abraham justified by faith, Isaac willingly to, to the sacrifice. Now, Jacob, with humility, departed from his land because of his brother, Esau. So Jacob's very humble. Uh, and he went to Laban and served him. That was very humble. And what did he get? The 12 tribes of Israel were given to him. So now we had an example of Abraham an example of Isaac, and an example of Jacob. You see, we've unrolled the scroll. We've gone back to uh, Bereshit. And uh, here we are um, learning, as it said in the previous chapter, the testimony of the good deeds of the fathers. 
Right, that's chapter 31. We could call it, I call it examples from Genesis. That's not very good. I call it the fathers, the forefathers, the, the three forefathers. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to go on, we're not done talking about Jacob though. We're going to talk about Jacob a little more. Chapter 32 goes on talking about Jacob. It says, Now if anyone will just consider them sincerely one by one, he will understand the magnificence of the gifts that are given to him. I know what this sounds like. It sounds like, count your blessings, count them one by one. Found a killer version of that song. No, Troy didn't write it. No. (laughs) I'm going to make him play it, though. (laughs) That's what it sounds like, but it's not what it's saying. He says, when he says, if anyone will consider them sincerely one by one, he's referring to the tribes, to the sons of Jacob, each of the the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he will understand the magnificence of the gifts that are given to Jacob. That Jacob had these amazing 12 sons and each one became a patriarch over a tribe of Israel. Verse 2, he says, For from Jacob came all the priests and Levites who minister at the altar of God. Right there. And then he goes and he goes from 0 to 60. He says, And from him comes the Lord Jesus. <laughs> From Jacob, in other words, comes the Messiah. He says, from him comes the Lord Jesus according to the flesh. What is, what, what is according to the flesh? What does that mean, according to the flesh? The apostles use that term, according to the flesh, all the time. It just means physically. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any negative connotation of not spiritual or not, uh, not holy or anything like that or sinful or evil inclination. According to the flesh just means physically. So he says, in other words, he says, from him comes Yeshua according to the flesh. In other words, his physical descent comes through Jacob. From him, from Jacob, comes the kings and rulers and governors in the line of Judah. In other words, the house of David is what is what is in view here. And his other tribes are held in no small honor. They just don't measure up to Levi and Judah, though, because he doesn't say anything else about him. But, you know, the other tribes are really important, too. So, so you say, uh, seeing that God promised that your seed shall be as the stars of heaven. Genesis 15, 5, that time, I think. When God says to Abraham, you know, he takes Abraham out and he says, Look at the stars and count them, if you can. So shall your seed be. All therefore were glorified and magnified, all, all the sons of Jacob, not through themselves or of their own works or the righteous actions which they did, but through his will. Now, all of a sudden, it's sounding very Pauline, isn't it? All of a sudden, it sounds very much like Paul. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves, or through our own wisdom, or understanding, or piety, or works, which we have done in holiness of heart, but through faith, by which the Almighty God has justified all who have existed from the beginning, from Brashit, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Throw in a quick doxology. All right, this was pretty great. I know what happens when you hear that kind of if you've been like in church a long time or you've been a Bible reader a long time, you start to hear that sort of where he's like saying, you start throwing out words like 
not by works, justified by faith, you know, this sort of thing. You start to just kind of go into, yeah, got it, you know, and zone out. All right. That's okay. That's all right. But I want you to pay attention this time, just this time, to what uh, to what he's saying. Because he's not just saying the same old thing. Yes, we're justified by faith, not by works. He's not just saying the same thing. He's saying, he makes this very important statement. Paul also teaches this, but it's not as explicitly clear in Paul's writings as it is here. He says, through faith, by which the Almighty God has justified, that means made righteous, all who have existed from the beginning. That doesn't mean this isn't like universal. We're not talking universal salvation. Everyone's made, been made you know, righteous. But he's saying anyone who has been justified at any time by God, anyone who is considered righteous by Hashem, you know, whether we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, 12, the heads of the 12 tribes, any of the heroes of the faith, it was through faith that they were justified. This is contrary, the reason I'm, I'm hammering this is because it's contrary to a common belief in the church that prior to the New Testament, people were saved by works or sacrifices, this sort of thing. And then after Jesus comes, you're saved by faith. Uh, but what, uh, what Clement is saying is that, no, everybody who's ever been justified by God has been justified by their faith in Hashem. That's chapter 32. Chapter 33. This one's a little longer. What then shall we do, brothers? Right there. What then shall we do? What then shall we say? I mean, what then shall we say? I mean, what then shall we do? What then? How many times do you hear Paul say that? A lot. Every time Paul says, what then? What then shall we say? What then shall we do? You know, this sort of thing. Uh, he's always introducing a false premise. The very next statement that Paul makes will be a false premise that he's, he's, he, he means the opposite of. Make sense? It's almost sarcastic. What then shall we, what then shall we do? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Yeah. Duh. No, obviously not, right? Whenever you hear that, that, that trigger, that should trigger in your head, you should hear, you hear, what then shall we say? You, you should hear like, uh, duh, obviously not. Whatever is, what, whatever is following is, is, and this is important because I can think of at least three instances in the New Testament where Paul says, what then shall we say, or what then? And then he goes on, but he goes on and he makes a statement which conventional interpretation takes as if it's Pauline advice where it's actually he's raised a false premise. Uh, and that's, that's pretty serious, where, like, where you have like Paul making a statement that people have, are taking it as if that's what he really means when he's saying, he's trying to say, no, da, obviously not. That's not what I mean. I mean the opposite of that. So same thing here. You get the point, right? Here comes a false premise. What then shall we do, brothers? Shall we idly abstain from doing good and forsake love? May the master never allow this to happen to us. So when he says that, now my translation, when it says the master, it's, you should just hear the Lord. And it's not, you know, I say the master, it's like the opposite of how we usually. Uh, when Lightfoot's translation of Clement says the master, it's Kyrios, it's the Lord. You know, it should be Hashem. You should think Hashem. 
Shall we abstain? Shall we idly abstain from doing good and forsake love? May Hashem never allow this to happen. In other words, God forbid, or chas v'shalom, at least to us, but let us hasten with earnestness and zeal to accomplish every good work. Now this is interesting because remember that Clement is so down on zeal. Remember he's like, oh zeal, the people with zeal, zeal, baseless hatred, all this zealousness, and that's sort of, all of a sudden now he wants to be zealous. Now he wants us to be zealous. But there is a zeal that's godly. Remember this word? Alacrity. That's the word. Let us hasten with zeal to do every good work. There is a teaching, a very common teaching in the Midrash, and Pirkei Vot? Alacrity. alacrity, yes. That illustrates this principle of alacrity. The teaching is in regard to the Akedah again, uh, Genesis cha- chapter 22. God says to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, Hineni, here I am. God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Get yourself to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. It says, Abraham rose very early in the morning. He got up very early in the morning, split the wood for the offering, saddled his donkey, took his two young men, and set out. The sages looked at this and said, okay, Abraham is a powerful man. He has 318 trained servants in his household. He couldn't send, he couldn't have one, I mean, if it was you or me, we'd have one of our servants say, you know what, I need some wood split and get the donkey ready. I'm leaving early, you know, and this is something he's not really looking forward to. It's not, it's not like he's like, oh, I just can't wait to get up there and slaughter my son. So the sages point out, what's going on here? Why is Abraham so eager to do this, that he's, number one, he's getting up early in the morning. Number two, he saddles the donkey himself. Number three, he splits the wood himself. See, see, Abraham has a commandment from Hashem. And as long as he has a mitzvah, that's the first priority. The first thing before him is to carry out the commandment. This is the true heart of a servant, of a good servant of Hashem. That that's number one. And so this is the teaching of alacrity. As you have a commandment, you take that on right away. I think that's what Clement is actually, seriously, I think that's what he's alluding to here, is that story. It says, let us hasten with earnestness and zeal to accomplish every good work. For the creator and master of the universe himself rejoices in his works. And now, remember, we're studying Brashit here. So he's going to give us his version of the creation story. And I'm just going to buzz through it pretty quick, but I think it's great. For the creator and the, and the master of the universe himself rejoices in his works, for by his infinitely great might he established the heavens, and in his incomprehensible wisdom he set them in order. Likewise, he separated the earth from the water surrounding it and set it firmly on a sure foundation of his own will. And the living creatures which walk upon it he called into existence by his decree. Having already created the sea and all the living creatures in it, he fixed its boundaries by his own power. Above all, as the most excellent and by far the greatest work of his intelligence, with his holy and faultless hands, he formed man as a representation of his own image. For thus spoke God, let us make man in our image and likeness. And God created man, male and female, he created them. 
So having finished all these things, he praised them and blessed them and said, increase and multiply. Okay, so there we got this very nice rundown, this very nice summary of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We have seen that all the righteous have been adorned with good works. What does this mean, all the righteous? It's all the tzadikim. He's saying, look, you see a righteous, all the righteous of the past, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the biblical heroes, they're all adorned with good works. And indeed, the Lord himself, having adorned himself with good works, rejoiced. What is this? What are these good works that the Lord himself rejoiced in, having adorned himself in? I don't know, but I, I mean, perhaps we're referring to the master, but I think we're still talking about Hashem at the creation. Because it says, and he saw all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. The good works of Hashem is, is creation. And so he rejoiced. So since we have this pattern, Hashem did all the good works of creation and then he rejoiced in them. Let us unhesitatingly conform ourselves to his will and let us with all our strength do the work of righteousness. So God does the work of creation and he rejoices in it. We do the work of righteousness and we rejoice in it and we're like partners with God in the creation. That's pretty great. So we could call this chapter the work of righteousness or the work of creation or something like that. I have one chapter left. I think one, one left. Yeah, one left. The good worker receives the bread of his labor confidently, but the lazy and careless dares not look his employer in the face. I don't know if Clement made that up or if that's a proverb he's citing. I mean, it could be that could have been that could be a Roman proverb or something like that, or it could be some unknown proverb because it sounds kind of proverbial, doesn't it? The good worker receives the bread of his labor confidently. He's like, he's like, yeah, I earned it. You know, I worked for it. But the lazy and careless does not look his employer in the face. He knows that he doesn't deserve his paycheck. You know, because he's been, he's been, you know, you know what? He's been um, on Facebook all week long, you know, pretending to be working and doing spreadsheets and that sort of thing. But he's been playing solitaire. Well, people used to play solitaire. Now they check their Facebook, <laughs> right? Watching YouTubes. <laughs> it's all sorts of ways to waste time now. You know, the, the more efficient we become with technology, the more adept we become at wasting time. And now we're talking about our reward from Hashem. He says, it is therefore necessary that we should be zealous to do good. There it is again, zealous to do good. For all things come from him. Zealous to do good. He warned us through the first part of the book not to be zealous, not to let zealousness uh, destroy us and create jealousy and baseless hatred and that sort of thing. But he wants us to be zealous for good. This corresponds to what we read in the book of Acts regarding the Jewish believers where James says, look at them. Myriads and myriads, all of them zealous for the Torah. Or we could look at, someone look this up for me, Titus chapter 2 verse 14. And someone else can look 1 Peter 3.13 up. Titus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own zealous to do what is good. Okay, so why have we been 
why has the master purified us to, to, to make us a people zealous to do good? Who has that First Peter reference? Okay, just the one verse, First Peter 3.13, if you are zealous for what is good. All right, so here's the thing. We keep saying good works, good deeds, good works, zealous for what is good. Uh, you know, and, and that we should be doing our work of righteousness and these good deeds and that sort of thing. What you have to know for sure is that this is just a Jewish idiom. This is a Jewish way of talking about the mitzvot of, of the Torah, the commandments of the Torah. A good deed is not, you know, all, you know, good deeds, kamilat chasudim, chasudim, good acts of loving kindness, those are all good deeds. Uh, but a good deed in in Jewish vernacular and apostolic vernacular, uh, it, like when the Master says, let your deeds shine before men, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, we're not just talking about any act of good, like uh, I washed the dishes, but rather we're speaking specifically of the commandments of the Torah. Now, if you have a commandment, you can hook your good deeds up to the commandments. I washed the dishes. If I wash the dishes for Beth Emanuel, you know, this is a... Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking a mitzvah, right? That's right. Yeah, it's going to stand. This is the same language. Labor, work, <laughs> deeds. We're talking... When we're talking about the service of Hashem, we're talking about the commandments, keeping the commandments. Remember last week we were learning about the resurrection and the you know the reward of the righteous, the resurrection. This week we're learning about being righteous. Uh, for he forewarns us, behold, the Lord comes and his reward is with him to pay each one according to his work. He quotes from Isaiah. It's also quoted in Revelation. This is, in fact, the way the whole New Testament ends on this verse or right around this verse. Behold, the Lord comes, his reward is with him, to pay each one according to his work. All right? He, ex he exhorts us, therefore, who believe in him with our whole heart. We believe with our whole heart. Not to be idle or careless about any good work. Let our boasting and our confidence be in him. Let us submit ourselves to his will. Let us consider the host of angels, for example, how they stand by and serve his will. For Scripture says, 10,000 times 10,000 stood by him, and thousands of thousands served him, says this in Daniel. And they cried out, as it says in Isaiah, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, all creation is full of his glory. Let us also then, being gathered together in harmony with intentness of heart, that's kavana, with, with uh, the right kavana, cry out to him earnestly with one mouth. How do we cry out with one mouth? He's speaking of liturgical prayer here. He's speaking of synagogue prayer. You know, you do the Kedusha in the synagogue prayers. That we may come to share in his great and glorious promises. For he says, and he's quoting now again from Isaiah, and uh, Paul also quotes this in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of man what great things he has prepared for those who patiently wait for him. Which is a reference to the world to come. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. In the Talmud it talks about the Messianic era is like this, the Messianic era is like that. What's, you know, we're going to have this in the Messianic era, we're going to have this in the Messianic era. And they say, but what about the world to come? Eye has not seen, 
ear has not heard, it has not even entered into the heart of man. In other words, nobody's even conceived of uh, what God has prepared for the righteous in the world to come. So you get, this is the reward of the deeds. So Clement established for us in the midst of this chapter, just a, not this chapter, but a couple chapters ago, that anyone who's ever been justified has been justified by faith, right? And he, he drove that home. But then the whole rest of the time he's been hammering on deeds, works, deeds, works, right? So I'm going to ask you the question that I kind of threw out at the beginning. What do you think he's doing? What do you think he's countering in Corinth with these passages? What is the new teaching in Corinth that has overrun the congregation that the new leadership has come up and is proclaiming and has dislodged the old leadership with. I think it's a misappropriation of Paul. I think the Corinthians are very devoted to Paul, uh, which makes sense. He's their apostle. And they have this collection of Pauline writings, and they've misunderstood the the new order in Corinth and the new uh, teachers in Corinth have misunderstood Paul's writings to be a grace versus works message, just like is common in the rest of the church, even to this very day. The new leadership says a lot. They say, you know, people just don't get grace. They don't just, they're just not, you need to get grace. Grace is so much, you know, and that sort of thing. And they'd be like, they'd be like, you know, that's, there's just a spirit of judgmentalism. And they would say that sort of thing. They'd probably say that like the old leaders just have this spirit of judgmentalism, you know, and and they just really don't, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and I think this is the issue that Clement is trying to take on here and trying to bring correction. He, think, he thinks if he can bring correction to this issue, then people will say, oh, we really were wrong about this. We need to put the old guys back in because these guys are leading us down the wrong path. 